Danny Wolf was born in Regina, Saskatchewan in June 1976. He was the second child of Susan Creeley, a First Nations woman from Saskatchewan's File Hills. Danny came into the world small and weak and three months early. His mother was drinking heavily in the months before she went into labor and had already finished a bottle of whiskey that night when worried friends drove her to Regina's General Hospital. Danny survived his premature arrival and from his earliest days was an energetic, exuberant child with a ready smile and a fierce temper. Years later, an elder would bless Danny with a ceremonial name, come up shouting at the earth. It was a good fit, his mother said. When Danny was three and his older brother Richard was four, Susan, tired of Regina and wanting to be closer to her older sister, moved the family to Winnipeg. Her partner and the boy's father, Richard Wolfe Sr., followed, and although they were more often apart than together in subsequent years, Susan and Richard Sr. quickly became fixtures in the boozy, combative party scene in the city's urban core. As a result, Danny and Richard had a lot more freedom to roam than most children their age. Their first brush with the law was when Danny was four and Richard five. Susan was at home in their modest two-bedroom apartment in a dingy, low-rise block on Sherbrooke Street that smelled of cigarettes and beer. When night fell, Danny and Richard still hadn't returned. Normally, she let them play around the street and they were fine, but this was very late. Finally, there was a knock at her door. Susan opened it to see Danny with a muddy and tear-stained face and a policeman's hand on his shoulder. The boys had walked more than a mile west and got lost near the Sergeant Park swimming pool. Susan was relieved, but this scene, police at her door, the boys in trouble, would be repeated dozens of times in the coming years. When Danny was about eight, he and Richard and a few friends conspired to hide inside a downtown department store after closing time. They crouched under a table and among the jackets in the men's clothing department. Once everyone left, they had the run of the place and marauded through the toy section. But it wasn't long before security spotted them and police were called. Once again, they were driven home in a squad car. Susan remembers very little of these incidents, except to say that they happened regularly. She drank a lot in those days, sometimes day after day. One party would fold into the next, and she didn't always come home. It would usually be an aunt or a neighbor who would check on Danny and Richard to make sure they were fed and clothed. Richard Sr. was often on the street, living a more or less transient life, or locked up in jail. When the boys reached school age, the family moved to a neighborhood just south of the Canadian Pacific Rail Yards, a vast stretch of metal track and freight cars that in many ways defines the city and its racial and economic divide. The North End is a tough, densely populated working-class neighborhood that looms large in the city's mythology. It's where Eastern European immigrants fought their way to establishing themselves in Canada beginning in the early 20th century, and where socialist radicalism burst forth in the 1919 general strike. In his 1957 book, Under the Ribs of Death, John Marlin memorably writes of the howling chaos of the North End, a description which applied as much to Danny's youth as it did to the area 100 years ago. While brawling and boozing were the story in an earlier day, shootings, fires, Drugs and prostitution became the stuff of daily life north of the tracks in the 1980s and 90s.